So church, we're saying the book of Colossians, a letter, a letter written by the apostle Paul to a group of people he had never seen. He's only heard about them from a faithful pastor or leader in that church named Epaphras. And so he writes to them regarding the issue of faith. And, and the, the, we know that we struggle with these issues. We battle every day against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And where one begins and the other takes over is hard to discern, but it's an ongoing struggle. It's a struggle that is never ending. It will never end this side of death and are going to heaven. So it is a struggle. And so the, the early church, these young believers in Colossae uh, are asking this question as they're surrounded by a culture that is filled with all types of superstitions and carnality. How do you break the stranglehold of sin? How do you break through the paralysis that comes upon us because of sin, the world, the devil, my flesh? How, how do you break through? And so we saw last week that Paul says there's a certain group at Colossae, we'll call them the super spiritual elite, who came forward and said, well, it is okay to believe in Christ, but we're going to show you a better way. We're going to show you the way forward to break through the paralysis or the tantalizing effects of sin. And so we read in chapter 2, verse 18, where the Apostle Paul writes, he says, let no one disqualify you or rob you of your joy insisting on asceticism or the harsh treatment of the body and the worship of angels and going into detail about all types of visions and puffed up without reason by their sensuous mind. And the result of this, they do not hold to Christ, who is the head, who nourishes the joints and the ligaments of the body and causes us to grow. He says, you know, these super spiritual elite, they come along and they say, well, first of all, you, you've got to beat up your body. You've got to be people who deny yourself and you can't do this and you can't do that. And you, you've got to go to great extremes to, to, to really be someone who, who conquers sin and who sees the reality of God. And Paul says, no, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Jesus has tasted death for you. It's not what you do, it's what he's done for you on the cross. And, and so they, he says, you know, th th this doesn't work. And he says, they, they come along, the second thing they say is, is you've got to have, you've got to have um, a mediator between you and God, an angel host an angel proxy. You've got to have somebody that will bring you into the presence of this pure and undefined essence that we call God, and, and you've got to have that. And Paul says, no, 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 no. You have one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for your sins. There's one mediator, First Timothy chapter 2, one mediator. If you fall into this worship of angels, then you will have lost your joy because you have downgraded Christ. It's like this whole issue of, of asceticism. Chapter 1, verse 21, Paul says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He says, church, you, you don't need to do stuff. You need to trust in Christ. And as you trust in Christ, you're presented as holy and blameless and above reproach. It's wonderful. When I was first out of college, I went to Singapore for two years in Southeast Asia, and 
there was a festival by the local Hindu people. About 20, 15% of, of Singapore are uh, Hindus, Indians, and so it's called the Festival of Thai Pusam. It's a big festival. It's, they, they stop the traffic and these well-meaning, devoted Hindu people make this deal. They, they, they go to one of their gods and they say, if you do this for me, then I'll go through Thai Pusam. Or I will go through Thai Pusam right now expecting you to do this for me. It's, it's a bargaining chip with one of their gods. And so this is what they do. It's amazing that they take steel rods as big as my index finger and they put the steel rods through their cheeks and they hang on the steel rods and they're, they're heavily drugged. And so they dance around and they sing and people around them with tambourines and they're chanting or, or they'll, take, they'll take fish hooks and put lemons on the end, large lemons, and they'll stick the fish hooks into their flesh on their back and their front and they'll whirl around and they're, telling, and, and, and they're making a bargain with a God. And that's what these people are saying. You ask the people type of Psalm, why are you doing this? Well, they say, we're doing this to win the favor of Ganesh or Vishnu or Shiva. And see, this is what the spiritual elite were saying to these people. You need to have harsh treatment of the body or you need to have an angel host or, or you need to have these visions. You need to go into great detail about, about visions that you see and the Apostle Paul says, no, there's nothing wrong with visions if they're anchored in the scripture, but they're having visions outside the reality of Christ. And so these visions are drawing you away from Christ because Christ is the final word and he's given his spirit to his holy apostles who's given us the word of God. And then he says, and then they're just puffed up. They're just arrogant. And Paul says, you, you throw in harsh treatment of the body that earns you favor with the God who is. You throw in the worship of angels as intermediaries or guides. You throw in, throw in all types of visions that get you away from the reality of Christ. And you're puffed up and you've lost connection with the head. And so that's the prelude to verses 20 to 23. Here's the scripture from Colossians 2, verse 20 to 23. If Christ... If with Christ you died to the elements or the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? For example, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, or the harsh treatment of the body, and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Ultimately, they're, they're, they're of no value. Well, it's interesting. Paul says, you know, I've got, he says, I've got to be honest, they have an appearance of wisdom. It, it looks good. It sounds good. It's, it's very self-congratulatory. In this self-made religion that advocates severity to the body. See, what's interesting, when we talk about being people who are, in this culture, we talk about the path of carnality. We live in a very carnal culture. We live in a culture that's just fantasized with sexuality and bodily appearance. I read an article a few months ago in a theological journal and the man made a very telling observation, I thought. He said, he said, not too long ago, we were holistic people that had a sexual component to, our, to who we are. 
Now we live in a culture where we are merely sexual beings. So we're no longer just, that's part of who we are. We, are, we define ourselves as sexual beings. So that's what we're used to hearing. But, but there is a component in the, in the scripture and in church history called the path of renunciation, where people just renounce things and they, they treat their body very harshly. In 1 Timothy, there's a statement made about this in chapter 4, where the Apostle Paul says this. He says, verse 2, through this insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, and this is what they do, they forbid marriage. They forbid marriage and require absence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. It's very interesting. I didn't say this in the last hour. We're celebrating the Reformation. It's very interesting that, that when, when the Reformers discovered that we live by Scripture alone, sola scriptura, one of the first walls that came tumbling down was a man-made wall that has created incredible havoc and harm and cost the Catholic Church hundreds of millions of dollars, and that is the wall of celibacy for priests. Some people have the gift of singleness. I believe that. Matthew 19. But they were demanding that priests be celibate because of nepotism and other things like that. But when they, when they, when they stood under the, the authority of Scripture alone, they saw that, 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 that the man-made wall of celibacy was just that, and these guys started getting married, and many of them had wonderful marriages. And of course, the Catholic Church, the medieval church of that day said, well, they're nothing more than, than lustful middle-aged men. That's not the truth at all. They said, we're no longer going to operate under the authority of man. We're going to walk under the authority of the Bible. And the Bible does not say you should be celibate if you're going to be a pastor or a priest. That's exactly what happened, the path of renunciation. So you look at some people today, if you were to go to Asia today, India, Cambodia, Burma, Laos, Vietnam, Hindu, Buddhist areas, both of those traditions have a path of renunciation where late in life, men, some of them very successful men, will renounce family, renounce their job, renounce their money, and they'll live in communes, and they'll walk around in robes, and they will beg for their rice if you're Buddhist every day. And, and, and if they go by you in India, it's a path of renunciation. People say, there goes a holy man. There goes a man who's renounced all to follow the path of renunciation so that in the next life, existence, they'll come back in a higher place because of the law of karma. And they say, there goes a holy man. We say, as we take up the scripture, there goes a deceived man. He's deceived. That accounts for nothing. There may be some nobility in it to a certain degree, but ultimately it accounts for nothing. So the path of renunciation, not a holy man, a deceived man. So, so there is renunciation in the Christian faith, but it's also to, to get to the joy. It's, it's just to get to the joy. It's to enjoy the favor of God. It's to enjoy a sight of the vision of God. I think of the statement on, on giving in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul's talking about, about giving and why we give and why we care for others. And he, he just says this. It's such a startling statement. He says this. The, the, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Verse 6. And whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each man must give up as he has made up his own mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. See, we, we, we give because 
God loves the cheerful giver. And I want to honor the Lord. We give because the Lord loves us. We give because it's, it's a joy. We give to get to the deeper purpose of life. So there's renunciation, but it's always for the purpose of joy and tasting the fullness of God. So I, I'll come back to this, this issue. Then I want to answer it this morning. How do you break, in this passage, the stranglehold of sin? How do you break the paralysis of sin? We'll start off by saying this. Everyone will deal with sin until we die. Certain subsets will come into our life on a different decade than the other decade. But we all will struggle with sin. Romans 7 is a description by the Apostle Paul of himself, a godly man. This is what he says. Verse 15, I do not understand why of my, my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I said, I don't, I don't get it. I don't do what I want to do. I do the very thing I hate. And let me ask you this. Do you ever cry that out? I do. Here we go again. Same thoughts, same response, same prickly answer to my spouse, same record keeping with my friends. That's just minimal. So I believe every person here at times cries out, I'm doing the very thing that I hate. And he goes on, he says this. I find, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. He goes on, he says this. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin and death that dwells in me. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I mean, Paul is saying, I am struggling. So, so, so the question that we're going to answer this morning is very important, is, is how am I released from the paralysis of sin? I'm going to suggest three levels. Level number one is what I'm going to call common grace arguments. The common grace means they're common to all people. Christians, non-Christians, all people. Level two will be biblical arguments, and level three, I want to argue, is, is really the place we should try to go. So let me explain. Level one would be uh, common grace exhortations. Now, in the 1980s, we had a campaign called Just Say No to Drugs, led by the Reagan administration. This is a picture of 1988 of Nancy Reagan with Doug Williams, two months after the Redskins won the Super Bowl, Super Bowl 21, I think it was, against the Denver Broncos. Yes, for those of you that are young, there was a time in the distant past when the Redskins made the playoffs and we went to the Super Bowl. It did happen. And in this particular game, the Redskins were behind 10 to nothing. And then the second quarter, they scored 35 points. Doug Williams threw for four touchdowns, a record that's never been equaled. Um, Super Bowl MVP, 
threw for 340 yards, a wonderful man. So that, there he is at a rally with Mrs. Reagan, the president's wife, just say no to drugs. If you, some of you remember, it had a skillet, one advertised with a skillet. It says, this is your brain, and then it threw in two eggs and said, this is your brain on drugs. So remember that? Two eggs frying, and some wit came along and put a poster and said, uh, this, is, this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs, this is your brain on drugs with a side order of bacon. I mean, it just, people just have too much fun with this stuff. Anyway, yeah, I think it had, it, had, it had an impact. It had an impact. Common grace arguments. Um, j- just say no. This book is a book I really like. In fact, we read it as a staff. It's a very easy read. It is a book by a retired admiral in the Navy who is in charge of the Navy SEALs, and he gives 10 rules for life living um, today. It's based on an address he gave at his alma mater at the University of Texas at Austin. But the first rule he gives is when you wake up in the morning, do something that shows that you're in the business of achieving something, therefore make your bed. And he says that, he does that, he says make your bed. It's not a message, subliminal message given by mothers to teens, it is a real message that he gives, make your bed. And it's a good book, it's got some great stuff in it. He's got a chapter though near the end on hope. He talks about never give up and never lose hope. And this is what he says. I think it's very interesting, and it's a common grace argument. So let me just show it to you and let you read it. He says, we will all confront a dark period in life, if not the passing of a loved one, then something else that crushes your spirit and leaves you wandering through, wondering about your future. In that dark moment, reach deep inside yourself and be your very best, close quote. Uh, that's a wonderful common grace statement. But as, I, as I read that, I thought, I didn't know if he's a man of faith or not, but I thought, as a believer, as a believer, that, that pales in comparison to what we would have to say about hope. See, when you go through a dark period of life, and we all go through dark periods, Frustrations, hurts, doubts, death. When you go through the dark period, cancer, you, you, what, what do you do? Do you reach inside yourself or do you sit up and you say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down beside the quiet world. He restores my soul. He guides me. He leads me. He watches over me. And when everything has happened, I can sit up and say, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Do you sit up and say, I thank you, O Lord Christ, that you are King and God, and you watch over me, and I can trust you. And I don't reach inside of myself to find hope. I reach into the heavens to find hope. I reach into the joy of the Holy Spirit to find hope. Do you say that as I get old and as my body sometimes fails me, that there's going to come a day when I'm going to be able to say with the Apostle Paul, death, where is your victory? Grave, where is your sting? Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now that is hope. See, the, the, the common grace hope of just reach inside of yourself and, and grit it out. And when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. And when the tough gets going, the, the going gets tough, whatever. I mean, all these little aphorisms, you know, come, come on. We have hope. So common grace arguments work to a degree. They're they're good. 
But there's a second level. The, the second level is what I call biblical arguments that are strong and true, and they're good. One of them could go with one or two, but you reap what you sow. You know, nobody I've ever talked to who's observed life very long would deny that statement from the book of Galatians and the book of Hosea in the Old Testament. You reap what you sow. You, you, you reap this, you'll sow that. You reap this, you'll sow that. This, this is what happens. You, you observe life. You, you reap what you sow. The past two weeks, we've been inundated with information from Hollywood about incredibly horrific happenings in the area of sexual abuse. And right before this was unleashed on us, we observed the death of a man named Hugh Hefner at the age of 91, who, by, by, by all estimation, by all estimation, lived a sad and broken and tragic life. The last what, 40 years of his life, maybe? 50 years? He was with beautiful young women, but he knew that they were hanging out with him because of what he could do for them. There's no sense of love. There's no sense of true companionship. It was all a parasitic tick-on-a-dog routine. It's horrible. And so you sit back to, to anybody that has a rational bone in their body and you say, man, look at his life. Any of your life walking around dressed like a captain, Viagra and do stupors, it's just sad. It's tragic. You reap what you sow. Yes. There's passages in the Bible that says that, that, that we should mortify or put to death the deeds of the body so we can really live. Uh, Jesus says, metaphorically speaking, cut off your hand, get out your eye. It's better to go to heaven maimed than to go to hell with your whole body. Be serious about sin. The Bible says, now flee from youthful lust. So all, all these are, are, are wonderful biblical exhortations. Uh, Proverbs chapter 5 is, is an incredibly bracing passage about, about the joy of marriage and the horror of being immoral. Chapter 5, let me just read a few verses. He says, verse 7, son, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from the door of the adulterous woman. Don't, don't go near her. That, that includes internet, guys. Lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you will groan and when your flesh and your body are spent and you will say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers. I did not incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Then he says, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Let them be for you alone and not shared with strangers. May your family be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. And I'll stop there because the next verse is X-rated. Just look it up, guys, Proverbs 5. But it's a bracing statement. It's a bracing statement. 
And we need to hear that. So, so, you know, so part, part, of, part of following Christ is doing the hard thing. But if, if we just do the hard thing, to do the hard thing, I call it white knuckle Christianity. You just grip it and you go and you go and I'm going to do the right thing. And sometimes you have to do that. Sometimes, sometimes you have to do that. But there's a higher way. Sometimes you have to avoid things. For example, we have some, I had the privilege of knowing some incredibly wonderful young people in our church, on our staff and on campus outreach. And a lot of these people, I'll say a lot, a number, several of them are involved in something called the Whole30 Diet occasionally. Now, if you don't know what the Whole30 Diet is, here's what it is. For 30 days, you do not eat carbs or sugar or, or dairy products, I think it is. It's just 30 days. And... And I'm, they do it, and I'm amazed at their discipline. It really is incredible. Um, I will never do that, by the way. One of my slogans in life is, life is too short not to eat a lot of carbs. You know? So, but anyway, they do the Whole30 diet, and we'll go out to eat as a staff. Some of the guys are doing the Whole30 diet. And I'll say, we'll say to them, where do you want to eat? And they'll say, well, let's go to the Mexican restaurant. Because I love Mexican food. I love all food. The only food I don't like is Sudanese food. It's just rice and beans that are tasteless. I just not Sudanese food. Anyway, so, so we, go to, we, we go to a Mexican restaurant. See, we go to the Mexican restaurant that, that serves all the chips and salsa you want. And I got to tell you, I love chips and salsa. So it's not good for me to go there. And I, I'll, I'll throw down three baskets of chips and salsa and then they'll bring the food and I'll say, just box it. I'm too, I'm, I'm too full to eat, that type of thing. I eat some of them and box it up. And, but I'm sitting there throwing down chips and salsa. And this person, these two people across me are on the Whole30 diet. They don't eat a single chip. And I am blown away by that iron discipline. Let me tell you something. If I ever do the Whole30 diet, which I will not. This is just make-believe. If I ever do the Whole30 diet, I'll go to a salad place that doesn't serve bread and you leave hungry. And they're out there, Okay. Because I know myself well enough, I've got to avoid that particular place if I'm on the Whole30 diet. This is true of the Christian faith. It's true. Of you, you, there are certain places you avoid. See, level two, you avoid, you flee, you run from, you're, you're not there. And, and that's, that's part of it. But let me, let me talk to you about what I believe is the ultimate shelf of obedience. And the ultimate shelf of obedience is in this passage. And it's Seeing, savoring, tasting, and knowing the beauty and the grandeur of Jesus. Level two is good. But you always should be pressing to level one. See, level two is good, but level one. You've got, you got, you got to be pressing into. Um, see this passage. We'll, we'll deal with this text next week, mostly. But Paul, Paul jumps right into the question, how do you put sin to death? How do you break through the, perilous, perilous, the paralytic area of, of sin? He doesn't go straight to verse 5 of chapter 3 that says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual morality, impurity, lust. He doesn't go there. First, the first four verses, and this is beautiful. He runs to the strength and the glory and the goodness of Jesus. This is what he says. If you have been raised with Christ... 
Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, you will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death. I want you to see that. My concern is that that we can live at level two, level two, level two, and white knuckle it and and, and, and tell our, our, our children, our grandchildren, our contemporaries, do, do, don't, do, do, don't, 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 and we never push to level one. And what I'm saying, we have to live at level two many times, but we're always going, no, I want to get to level one. I want to taste and see and, and glory in and touch the reality of Jesus. That's what he's saying in this text. Don't miss it. Just a few quotes. C.S. Lewis had a sermon called The Weight of Glory in World War II, and he says this. He says, the New Testament has a lot to say about self-denial, but not as an end in itself. He says, that's from Kant and the Stoics, Immanuel Kant. He says, when you consider the, the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. And he says this, we are no, right here. Yeah, here we are. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with, 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 uh, with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what, a, what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. And then a Puritan named John Owen. He's on the front of your bulletin. John Owen is my favorite Puritan. He died in 1688. And John Owen, I named, we named our son after John Owen. Our son's middle name is Owen. I love John Owen so much. Zach always told people he's named after a wrestler. No, he's named after a Puritan. So anyway, Owen says this. He says, He says, you got to get a relish of the privilege we have. Our adoption and justification and acceptance with God. Fill the heart with thoughts of the beauty of holiness as it is designed by Christ. And in the ordinary course of walking with God, he will have peace and security. And he begins, he says, you know, he says a man ought to have an understanding of the brevity of life. Absolutely life is short and then you die. A man ought to understand punishment, that God punishes, disciplines those those whom he loves. A man ought to understand the terror of the Lord, absolutely, that you you reap what you sow. He says, listen to this. This is John Owen the Puritan. But these will never stand alone against a vigorous assault from the devil. But store the heart with the sense of the love of God in Christ and with the eternal design of his grace and with the sense of the forgiveness of sins by the blood of Christ, that's what you need. So I'm saying, we've got to understand level two, life is short, God is God, God is our Father, he disciplines us, and yes, but I've got to understand Level one, I've got to taste and see and glory in the goodness of Christ. That keeps me strong. This is okay for a season. It's white-knuckle obedience. 
My question to you, my question to me is, are you tasting the goodness of the Lord? Do you see him as the shepherd who loves you, who goes before you and calls you by name, who is beautiful and glorious and gracious and kind? Are you tasting the goodness of God? I need it. I need it every day. So three points, very quickly. Number one, we must taste and see the goodness of the Lord on a continual basis. Continual. See, I'm a leaky bucket. I've got to be filled. I need fresh anointings from the Holy Spirit. Thank God that he saved me when I was 19. Thank God for his mercies. Thank God for his faithfulness. But today, I want to see you and know you today. Psalm 34, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. First Peter chapter two, get rid of malice and guile and hypocrisy and envy and slander. And like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word that by you may grow up in your salvation since you've tasted that the Lord is good. Church, are you tasting the goodness of Jesus? Again, I'm back in Singapore, I'm 22, 23, 1976, 77. I'm in a prayer meeting with about 20, 25 missionaries, wonderful people, been on the been missionaries for 30 and 40 years. A couple of them had, had left Vietnam on the last helicopter out of Vietnam because they loved the people of Vietnam so much they did not want to leave and they were forced to flee. Now I'm in this, these, these people are 55, 60. I'm 22, 23. And in this prayer meeting, and there's this dear man that broke down. He says, says, Lord, I have lost my sense of your presence in my life. He'd been in Vietnam. He said, Lord, I remember when I was a student at Wheaton College that we were pleading for revival and we'd get up at four o'clock, two or three mornings a week and we'd plead for God for revival and I tasted your goodness. I don't have it today. God have mercy on me. I'm sitting there. I'm, I mean, I'm a kid. I'm around these people that are, are giants. And so I ask myself today, am I tasting the sweetness and the goodness of Christ? Psalm 84, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield and he bestows favor and honor and no good thing does he withhold from those who walk before him. And that's what David wrote before he fell into sin with Bathsheba and he killed Uriah. I said, God, let me taste your sweetness. Number two, our, our, our affections must be continually impacted by the knowledge of the mercies that are found in Christ. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. I've got to continually taste. See, see my, my affections, my, my, I'm a, I'm, we're people of affections. You know, when I first was, was trying to get Sarah to marry me, and it took a while, uh, I, I, would, I would court her. I would bring her presents. I would do goofy things that I'll never tell anybody. Uh, try to write poetry, which is 
just terrible, rose red, violet, blue, I love you, whatever. But you, 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 you remember when you're trying to woo your spouse? You do goofy things. And, and, and then 20, 30, 37 years into marriage, you just take each other for granted. They're there. They're around. That's terrible. That's a terrible way to live. So I'm always thinking, man, man, I've got to be a man of affection. So just to be bluntly honest, I was depressed Friday night. The Syracuse game was horrible. Horrible. I thought, I could coach this team better than Dabo tonight. Come on. And it was just, I was just, it was, it was depressing. Went to bed depressed. And, and, and say, well, you, and to me, I think that's appropriate. Let me explain. Let me explain. If you have, I like, I'm like the New York Yankees. I can't believe they lost two to one yesterday. I, I love Aaron Judge. He's just, anyway. So if you are a sports fan, to a degree, you should be impacted by the way that your team is performing. I mean, you can go way over and it becomes an idol to you. And many of you need to repent of that and, 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 and burn your Gamecock paraphernalia. I mean, really, you need to get ready. Just kidding. I mean, you, it, it, it can become an idol. Don't misunderstand me. It can become an idol. But, but I want to be impacted in my affections by the things that I really care about. Now, that, that sports compared to other things is way down here. Don't misunderstand me. But to say, well, it makes no big deal. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. Ultimately, it makes no big deal. But really, I want my affections to be affections. Don't, don't, don't kill your affections. Plead for God to, to blow affections into your spirit. Let me just read this by John Owen. John Owen, you know, the Puritan, 1688, John Owen. Labor to possess the mind with the beauty and excellency of spiritual things so they may be presented lovely and desirable to the soul and thus sin will be weakened. It is an innate acknowledged principle that the soul of a man will not keep up cheerfully unto the worship of God unless it has a discovery of a beauty and desirability in it. The mind of a man must see a beauty and desirableness in the things of God's worship or it will not delight in it. See, you hear that? There's got to be a beauty and a desirable in it or we're not going to really worship. I want to love the Lord with my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Okay, go. I've got to know a sweeter song, story, Greek mythology. There's a guy named Ulysses and a ballad by a guy named Homer called the Iliad, Ulysses or Odysseus. And he and his men are on this long journey and they're going to go by an island that's inhabited by sirens, S-I-R-E-N-S, which are beautiful, we, we say now, voluptuous, lovely, sea nymph women who have an, an alluring song. And so as you go by the island of the sirens, the sirens start singing, and the sailors who are rowing see them, they're beautiful, and they hear that beautiful song, and so they row the ship to the voice and to the beautiful women, but the beautiful women are dastardly creatures because in front of the island are all these rocky places where a, a ship will crash and be 
battered to oblivion and the men will die. So it's bad. the signs are bad news. And so Ulysses hears about him, knows about it. And so he says to the men on his ship, he said, hey, what guys? He says, take this wax and stuff it in your ears and tie me to the mast. And when we get within the area of the sirens uh, and I start screaming at you to untie me and threaten you with death or whatever, do not listen to me. That's what they did. They put wax in their ears and they rowed. There are the sirens, they're beautiful, the song, they row, they row, and there's Ulysses lashed to the mast and he starts screaming, untie me, untie me, untie me, I will kill you if you don't, I will kill you, I will mutilate your bodies, I will throw you to the, to the birds, untie me. They didn't listen to him. And so they rowed, they got out of earshot, they untied Ulysses, he was totally depleted physically. But he, that's what he, he was lashed to the mast. Story two, there's a guy named Jason and the Argonauts. Remember that? And he was searching for the golden fleece. And Jason and the Argonauts were going again by the island of the Sirens. But Jason had a guy on board named Orpheus. And Orpheus was a master musician on the harp. And so... Jason says, Orpheus, when we get close to the island of the sirens and you hear the first faint noise from those sirens, play with all of the beauty that you can muster. And so they get close to the island of sirens and Orpheus goes, boom, boom, playing beautiful music, beautiful music that overcame the music of the sirens. Mozart, see, not Bon Jovi. Mozart. Not you two, Mozart. Say, whatever. No, seriously, they started playing this beautiful music and they went safely by. So there's a great spiritual application to that. I've got to hear a sweeter song. It's not just that the elders will lash me to the mast and we go through with white knuckle obedience. It's that I need to hear a sweeter song. The song of grace and goodness, the song of the cross, the song of a future and a hope, the song of the Trinitarian glory of the living God and the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I've got to hear a sweeter song. Are you hearing a sweeter song? Are you laboring to get there? Do you realize this up and are you pushing up from level two, which is okay, to level one? Let's pray. Lord, I, we are thankful for this day and we're thankful for the, the fact that the Apostle Paul, when he's addressing these super spiritual elitists and their harsh treatment of the body and their worship of angels and their glorying in fanciful visions, does not just run to verse 5 of chapter 3, which is put to death. No, he, he, he camps out on the glories and the hopes of who Jesus is. May we do that. Lord, as we parent and love and disciple and mentor and have small groups and teach, may we be people who say that there is a level two obedience or this very important, flee, avoid, put to death. Oh, that's very good. But Lord, may we always do that in light of, oh, behold the beauty and the majesty of Christ. 
Behold, sins forgiven by the shed blood of the Savior. Behold the hope of heaven. Behold the present-day ministry of the Holy Spirit of the living God in our lives. Change us, I pray, Lord. Um, in Jesus' name, amen.